So this is Fundraising Radio, and today as a guest speaker, we have Gerard Cassell, founder and managing director of TYLT Ventures. And today we're going to focus on stock options, how to figure it out, when should you take care of that, how should you use them to motivate your team to work, etc. So Gerard, sorry, let's kick off by you giving us some background on yourself and on Tilt Ventures. Sure. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, my name is Gerard Cassell, and uh, I live and work in Santa Monica, California. I have been a licensed practicing lawyer now for going on 28 years. I graduated from the law school at Pepperdine University in Malibu back in 1992. And uh, just a brief overview um, my background. Um, I spent uh, the first uh, two, three years of my practice as a litigator, um, which was the best job at the time. And um, it was a, a law firm in the Mid-Wilshire area. And uh, it, it wasn't what I had intended to, to do. I always knew that uh, in my heart, I wanted to be a business lawyer, more of a corporate guy, uh, helping young companies um, grow. But um, Anyway, it was very interesting because it was a great background to have. Um, after doing that for a while, of course, like any uh, young guy out there after a few years of working really hard, you think you know everything and you know enough to do it on your own. <laughs> and so um, with that mindset, I formed my own firm. Of course, I knew practically nothing, but um, <laughs> I think that was, uh, that was part of the only reason why I actually took the chance. and. Uh, it turned out that was a, another good decision. I formed my own firm, two other partners, and um, that firm to this day I've always kept active. And uh, I focused on business and corporate law uh, with an emphasis on securities law. So things like raising money and how to navigate uh, SEC rules and, and state securities laws and how to prepare documents, how to structure companies the right way to raise money. And uh, my other two partners took on the other stuff like litigation and <clears throat> other forms of, uh, of legal services. And um, we had a really great time doing that through the 90s into the early 2000 area. That was uh, also a time just, um, you know, when the uh, a lot of young companies, the internet, uh, mobile telephony, all that stuff was really just coming online. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it was a really interesting time to be alive, but it was a great time to be young and be a professional and in business. And then a few things happened to me um, right around uh, 1999, 2000. I went back to the law school and they allowed me to design a course on venture finance law, which I taught for a couple of years as an adjunct uh, professor. That was kind of cool. That got me introduced to a research lab called the Hughes Research Lab, uh, which is also in Malibu, right next to Pepperdine Law School. And um, Hughes Research Lab was sort of a skunk works that Howard Hughes had developed uh, many years ago to attract some of the best PhDs for high tech uh, development. So they do a lot of government work for DARPA there. Um, at the time I was there, Boeing, Raytheon, and General Motors owned it. Um, I got very close to the management there, especially at that time, the, the president. 
And um, he invited me to try to come up with a structure that would allow them to incentivize their PhDs um, who were, you know, creating great work. Um, but he was losing at that time most of his better people to some of the rock star tech companies that were going public and uh, had a lot of cash and had these great packages to offer. So he wanted to find a way to keep them. Took about a year, but we developed a spinoff uh, strategy. We developed a holding company. The idea was that all these inventors who had ideas that were approved by business people like myself and a team of, of VCs that I'd brought in to fund it, they would get stock options and, and other uh, perks in this holding company and their ideas, if they got commercialized, there would be you know, a little pot of gold down the road for them. And that worked out really well. We did that for about four years, a little more than four years, sold that company. And um, now a couple of things happened. First, uh, I still was, you know, I still kept close to the, the law practice. I always had a friend or a family member that needed a deal to get done and I would sort of advise and help. But now I had some time and a little bit of money, but more importantly, I had the know-how and I had a, a new network in the VC arena and uh, in the finance arena. And, um, you know, my skill set had broadened and my worldview had broadened. And uh, so basically kind of took about a year to kind of look at just kind of what I would do next. I had always had had a, a pretty uh, significant book of business and out of a few firms that were after that book of business. I, I kind of brought my practice, the law practice, into a larger firm. Um, and uh, it was a New York-based firm at the time. And um, very entrepreneurial allowed me to continue to do the things that I had been doing, kind of looking at investments. And I met, uh, during that time, my current business partner, who was diversifying his portfolio of sort of operating companies. And he was also making angel investments. And I asked if I could make some angel investments with him. And we started doing that. Um, I moved to a law firm called Troy Gould in Century City. And he and I started working even closer together and making more investments together. Uh, some good, some that didn't work out. But what we learned was that First of all, we enjoyed uh, working with each other. Um, we were it was about the same age. Uh, we both had you know, young children at the time. And uh, our philosophy was the same, which was you know, we wanted to get behind companies that we could roll up our sleeves and help operational-wise with our skill set. But also that um, they were young enough, but had enough momentum and traction in their industry that not only could we understand, but that we could see and really measure the potential for growth. And so we shared that philosophy and uh, we were out there finding those, those companies. The problem was, was that I was still practicing law, you know, in a partnership, which was demanding in its own way. You know, it was very unwieldy. We had no system. Uh, it was really the two of us sort of uh, just out there as angels prowling around and trying to do what we could do. So uh, after doing that for several years, uh, about seven years ago, uh, we finally convinced each other to put up a proper venture capital fund. We called it Tilt Ventures. Actually, at that time, it was called Tilt Lab. The first fund was Tilt Lab. And, um, and since that time, we've done 
just about 50 transactions. And uh, we've really honed in on kind of defining that model and the philosophy, which is to find um, young companies, but companies that, you know, they're way beyond proof of product and proof of concept. Yeah, typically they're in the market, they've got traction, they've got momentum, uh, which can mean either revenue growth or user growth, or they've got some fantastic partnerships lined up. And um, that's really the course that we've been on. So yeah, we're pretty proud of the portfolio there. In parallel with that, the last seven or eight years, um, I've kept my legal skills sharp. Uh, I still love to counsel and advise uh, young companies, entrepreneurs. Um, you know, there's, a, I would say, a daily, if not weekly, flow uh, of folks coming in that need help in, in some different way. Um, you know, I've always been involved in the M&A side, so um, that's been kind of a very active part of our business internally. But what my partner and I also do, we have a handful of companies from when we started working together, um, you know, about 12 years ago, when I mentioned we first met, that we now own and operate, that uh, we either own outright um, or he has owned from uh, his past uh, or that we've invested in and that we control. So separate from the funds, we, we manage and operate a handful of companies. They're very different. Each one of them is a very different type of an entity and a different type of business. And um, we manage the day to day. So, you know, all the good stuff, all the bad stuff, the, the pros, the cons, the negatives, uh, the problems that come up. And um, in that capacity, I, I sort of serve as a broad general counsel. Um, so identifying all the legal problems and then also, you know, basically a corporate development person so that if there's strategy or structure uh, issues and things like that that come up, uh, I handle that. So presently, I uh, kind of run in parallel in both those threads, managing a fund, which is a kind of a, a seed level uh, early stage venture fund called Tilt Ventures, and uh, I'm still very active and practicing as basically a general counsel for our companies and uh, other folks that I, I, I like to help from time to time. That's really that's a great background. I'm so happy I brought you here. Uh, I think that's one of the major problems that founders have is really the legal side because some founders focus too much on the legal side and do way too much and the others just completely ignore it and think that we're going to fix it later. So uh, first, we're definitely going to talk about the legal side and then we're going to back, go back to Tilt Ventures. First question sure. would be, what are the major mistakes that early stage founders do on the legal side of the business? So maybe they file too many patents or to be honest, that's the only thing that can pop in my head right now. So maybe you can give us some more background. Yeah, I think if I look at uh, um, the broad view, the, the macro view of issues that come up, um, you know, maybe not even, uh, I don't know if you want to call them mistakes. Everyone makes mistakes. I think uh, mistakes are a normal. If you're not making mistakes, you're probably not taking chances and you're probably not an entrepreneur by definition. But um, I think some of the, the mistakes or uh, maybe the steps that are either missed or misguided commonly is uh, sort of a broad view. I think uh, there, there are times and what separates maybe some of the better companies from the ones that struggle is that uh, the founders who I think really step back 
and really think through before they launch into an execution plan and each step of the way they check in, what's the strategy that they're going to lay out before they go out and, and kind of set the strategy and then implement and execute it. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, each key piece of what you're going to do, one piece of that could be initially kind of a legal structure, obviously. Um, but what's the strategy? How are you going to set the strategy instead of just jumping in and, and kind of, you know, diving in and going after that? And I think that's probably the overarching macro view of what I think is, is one of the issues. And I think as a subset of that, and when it comes to legal, and I know <clears throat> you have me on here sort of both as a, a VC and sort of wearing my legal cap, I think, um, you know, my advice uh, from both avenues or both positions would be, um, you know, of course you want to, you know, being the business that you're in, of course, makes a difference. Um, but I've seen great leaders that, you know, I mean, can sell anything. And, um, you know, it, it could be things that you wouldn't imagine before. Yeah, kitchenware done in a certain way. It could be an online digital play. It could be hardware. It could be very difficult industries like skincare. And I think all, the ones that do well, they've set a strategy as to what and how they're going to uh, exploit that strategy. But they really take time to think about, okay, instead of just slapping a bunch of things together on the legal front, maybe I need to pause. I know everybody wants to preserve capital. Nobody wants to spend too much money. I think uh, lawyers can be, um, as a line item, way too expensive. And I get all that. But it costs a lot more to go back and fix things that haven't been thought out and done right than to do it right the first time and spend the time trying to find somebody that will work with you cost effectively to help you grow and really set that strategy. One of those things is setting your legal strategy properly. And um, so I think we see from time to time a lot of, um, at least on the, on the legal side, I see a lot of things that where their corrections, um, you know, they were documents that were pulled off the internet to do a license agreement that was really not well thought out for what the objective was. Um, it might've been, you know, like you, you kind of inferred, you know, very much a focus on intellectual property without a purpose, meaning, you know, spending a lot of time, money and effort, uh, just on kind of harvesting IP, but not necessarily having the execution around it as to where it was going to go and how you're going to monetize it. And, um, the biggest is probably really getting your partnership or founder relationships or in partnership, I don't mean necessarily a legal partnership, but the key people you're starting the business with really thinking through all the what ifs and making sure you've got that put together the right way in your documentation. And unfortunately, part of those what ifs are what if things don't work out and running through the different schematics of, uh, you know, when things don't work out how your documents, uh, you know, support an exit strategy within a relationship. So a little bit of a longer answer, but I think the macro view is really think, you know, get your strategy together, vet that strategy, set your strategy, and then go out and start to do it. Right. I think that was a pretty thorough answer. So I really liked it, despite the fact that it was a bit long. <laughs> but yeah. here I wanted to jump into the last topic that you've touched on. It's this uh, partnership agreements, what if, covering all what ifs. Uh, 
what happens when the one founder decides to sell and the other founder still works on the project, etc. So uh, let's talk a little bit about that. So how do you, what are the first three steps that you need to take to protect yourself from founders deciding to leave and ruin the whole project? Right, so I think, um, you know, the, the first thing would be, again, just kind of defining <clears throat> who's in the, the, the group is it, you know, are we talking about, and it, it, frankly, there are many times it's one person to start and that one person has to think about how they're going to set aside uh, maybe a pool of stock options or how they're going to bring other key people in and kind of how they're going to do that as it goes forward. So, I mean, that's even a single person has to think through that, but assuming you've got a small group, um, getting that group together and really understanding you know, what type of entity is it and why are you going to use the type of entity you're going to use? But regardless of that, whether it's a LLC, a partnership, a corporation, <clears throat> excuse me, um, there is a, a key seminal document, um, you know, whether it's an operating agreement or a shareholders agreement, but there's sort of the your charter which is basically going to be, you know, what you turn to, whether or not there are good things that happen or bad things that happen or decisions that need to be made. And that document is one that I would say is probably the most important to have a professional really work you through and get an understanding of all the key elements to it. And, um, yeah, so anybody can call a service and set up an entity uh you can do that online you can you know there are different services that are not lawyers they're just uh service providers that will set entities up they have forms you can find forms on the internet legal zoom all the rest but they're not going to be able to provide you with that in-depth analysis of that charter document i think it really starts with that and i think you learn a lot about your partners and how things are going to go by walking through those charter documents. Awesome. Yeah, documents are the key. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. It's not, I think, but it's really important and they can tell you a lot. Uh, so since you've said that you're mixing this, uh, you're an investor as well as you're practicing, still practicing law, I was curious if you mix the two. So I've heard uh, some of uh, investors who present on Fundraising Radio they actually gave advice to try to reach out to some lawyers who work with startups and pitch them your idea to get an investment in form of uh, service credits. Have you ever done this? Do you think it makes sense? So, yeah, that's, um, and again, not to be too long-winded because I tend to go on here, but um, the first thing that I think people have to realize is that uh, inherently as a lawyer and, and the bar, uh, state bar gives advice on this there can be a conflict of interest for a lawyer in taking equity in a client <clears throat> um, now that conflict if it's addressed properly can be waived so if a client is aware first of all that there's a, a conflict which you, that a lawyer who knows what he's doing should make the client aware uh, and if the client has its own representation or the ability to have its own representation in negotiating with that lawyer, you can go a ways um, to resolving and waiving that conflict and you can put it all in writing and you can go forward. But I mean, that's one caveat in all of this is that 
they're the reason why a lot of the bigger law firms out there that don't want to take the risk and liability of that conflict don't take equity um, is just that. That doesn't mean it can't happen. It doesn't mean that it's illegal or anything like that. It's just sort of a risk tolerance. Um, so when I started as a young lawyer, I thought that, you know, if I did it the right way and those uh, transactions were fair, they were reasonable, they were based on performance, the client really understood uh, what it meant. It was in writing and the client had its own ability to get somebody to, to talk to me about it as a professional. I thought it was worth doing. And uh, I still think think so today. And I think mostly, uh, actually, I can't think of any company I've had that has not thought that that was a win-win. <clears throat> and um, so for me, I've had the flexibility, especially in my own practice and the, the law firms that I work with, um, to do these relationships that could be based on either hourly fees or discounted fees um, with the ability to take you know, more fees later as the company grew and defer fees or flat fees or a hybrid where there was some equity or stock options involved, uh, any or all of the above. And um, I still think that that for me is an approach. Uh, there are, you know, many lawyers that either on their own or smaller firms that I think have become more aware of that. Um, but, you know, just again, the caveat, there is uh there, there is some risk there, and there is the uh, the conflict issue to deal with. God, it sounds like really complicated deals can can be made with lawyers. So here, I think we have about 10, 10 more minutes. And okay. here, I would like to shift a little bit towards your actually investing professional part. So let's talk a little bit about Tilt Ventures. How do you sure. source your deals? That's the first standard question that I ask any investor that's on my podcast. How do you find those deals? How should founders approach you? So we there, there's um, like probably most uh, VCs or investors that have been around for a while. Uh, there are several channels. Uh, one, through our website, believe it or not, every day we get a number of, sometimes many more, but we get a number of inquiries just directly off the info uh, link in the email on our website. Um, I would say that's probably um, the most difficult to find the the type of deal flow that would match up because you know it's there's there's no connection there's no relationship and there's no vetting but that's one. Um, another is just our networks. I mean, we have between my business partner and I together. I mean, we've been uh, in business professionally together about sixty five years, you know, collectively. Um, so. You know, you do anything that long, you know some people, and those people know people. And once they know what you're doing, uh, you definitely have people. There's no shortage of people out there looking for money that are within that network. Um, then we have relationships with advisors. We're fortunate enough, if you go on our website and you go to our, to our advisor page, uh, we've got about a dozen or so what I would consider world-class advisors, um, some of the best uh, UI, UX designers probably in the country, engineers, uh, physicians, um, tech people, yeah, just all sorts of people from different paths. And all of those folks uh, are very active. I mean, some of them I talk to every day and they all have their different um, deal flow uh, intakes that we get connected to. 
and uh, and that works out very well. And then there's, um, I would say, probably about a dozen or so folks that we just continue to cultivate that are very close to the action. They're consultants, they're professional consultants. They work, some work for big consulting firms um, like a McKinsey and then others are on their own. And uh, on a weekly basis, they're in front, either they have clients that are deals potentially. Those tend to be good sources because they've already been vetted by those folks. And then I would say the founder network we have is probably the optimal source. Um, so if you look for some of our investments like Flexport, um, which is a monster company now, uh, Thrive Market, another monster company, these are all, you know, potential unicorns in the making, uh, you know, each well over a billion dollar valuation. You know, for those companies, we were one of the, some of the first investors in those companies, very close to the founders, um, you know, Sweetgreen when it started, very close to the founding group there, came out of Georgetown. So we cultivate all those relationships um, and maintain those. And we tend to get excellent uh, deal flow from those folks because good people know good people. And uh, that's another source for us. Sounds like you're really not struggling with your deal flow whatsoever, but let's go to the first part that you described in your deal flow, which is your website. You get like tons and tons of inquiries, right? So how do you review them? Do you, what are the points that you're looking at on the pitch deck that you, if you see them, you're like, okay, we're, we can follow up on these people. If not, you're just ignoring the, the, the inquiry or those points. Yeah, I think, and that's that's the one that's probably the fastest to rip through. So what I've done from the very beginning, because I've I've been the hands-on manager, is I'm the one who gets the those emails, and I can tell very quickly, um, probably just from the email now, uh, whether or not it's um, it's something that we want to discuss with that individual, and um, you know, it's just the thoughtfulness of the email, um, some of the keywords that we're looking for. Again, we're looking for momentum. So if a company is way too early and it's, uh, you know, sometimes we get inquiries about joining an incubator or an accelerator. Well, that's that's not what we do. Um, but we're happy to refer to, you know, good accelerator incubator programs that we know. Um, so it's pretty fast that way, actually. Vetting those uh, is very, very fast. If it for any of our intake, whether it's um, a consultant, a, you know, a founder in our network or the website, if it gets beyond our initial thrust, then we have analysts that uh, get involved in basically tearing up the business, doing research so we can start having good calls or meetings with the founders. And then we, after that, if we like it, we really focus on the pro forma. Um, you know, does this founding group really understand what they're about to do if they get the capital? We spend a lot of time on that. So there, there's a whole process there, but initially it's it's pretty easy to distinguish you know, what goes on and what doesn't. Got it, perfect, yeah. Just be careful with the do your homework before writing an email to anyone. So here I want to have a, just one last wrap up question and then we'll wrap it up. So, um, what would be your advice, three points that a starter, just a beginning startup founder should do to raise uh, his or her first pre-seed round, first three steps that he or she should take? I would say first and foremost, set your, your founding group, whether it's 
you as an individual or a group, but I, I really do firmly believe if you can do it, uh, and most of the companies, if you go look at even our website, if you talk through them, pretty much everyone, I can't even think of one that's not, everyone that's been successful, there's at least two, if not three co-founders. So I think it's really important to set your founding group um, and really getting an understanding with that founding group. I think that's probably the most important part because at least a few or several good people together can figure out any challenge. Then I think it's setting the, the strategy plan for how you're going to form um, what you're going to do, I, you know, the basis of structure of how you're going to do it. Some of that involves legal and a lot of that involves sort of uh, some financial planning, you know, use of proceeds. How are you going to use the money to do what? Good, I think good investors really will break that down to test you um, to ensure that you're going to be a good steward of capital. Um, and then three, you know, just realize and tuck a note somewhere to be tenacious, uh, never give up. I mean, it's a cliche and everybody says it, but, um, you know, it's how you deal with adversity because you are, and you will, and everybody does deal with adversity. It's just all about how you deal with it. I mean, we've got a handful of companies that, uh, in the last seven years have failed. And, uh, I can say largely it was because we picked the wrong founders. We just, we picked founders that didn't understand how to pivot, um, threw in the towel and, um, you know, you make mistakes like that, but, uh, I would say those are the top three things. Right. Great advice. I think the first one is the most valuable, probably just get settled down the whole with the team and then you can do anything with the team. So. We're going to wrap it up here. Thanks a lot, Gerard. Gerard, I'm sorry, I keep saying Gerard. <laughs> My bad. Uh, thanks a lot, Gerard, for coming out, for sharing your experience. I think it was great. Uh, tons of good legal, especially advice. And I'm going to leave a link to Till Adventures here in the description of this episode. And anyone who's listening to this, you should go on, check it out. Maybe you can find some good advisors, some good advice. Sounds great. Thanks for having me. Thanks. All right. Have a great day. Bye. You too. Bye-bye. You really thought it's the end of the episode? Nope, not yet. In these uncertain times when a weird virus is spinning out of control and investors are trying to figure out where to put their money and not to lose it all, I have an answer. Invest in human capital. I will be among the first 10 people to participate in something called human IPO. So shortly about how it works. You can buy futures on my time now when it costs just $100 per hour. And when I become Mark Zuckerberg 2.0 and my time is worth $1,000 per hour, you can sell it or redeem it, either making 10x return or bringing me to your firm as an advisor or speaker for a few hours. My offering is not live yet, so now you can only subscribe to my updates. But please do so and become the first one to buy my time when my offering goes live. To sum it up, in dark days, buy time, not toilet paper, and your money won't be flushed into the toilet. I'll leave a link to my profile on Human IPO in the description of this episode, and thanks again for listening to Fundraising Radio.